Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. We are greatly excited to continue our journey together through the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. Yeah. Eleven weeks ago, we began with the ministry of Zerubbabel and Joshua as they laid the foundation of the temple and ultimately saw its completion. Their work brought revival into the heart of national Israel, paving the way for Ezra's arrival. From Zerubbabel and Joshua, we learned that what began in the spirit will be completed in the spirit. If we are faithful to put our hands to the work and eliminate all other priorities. Now the arrival of Ezra was certainly exciting for Jerusalem. And his arrival in the story was exciting for us. Come on. Say it with us. He is Ezra! Now from Ezra's personal practice and public ministry, we gained a new appreciation for the adherence to the word of God that Yahweh calls all who would follow him to. In many ways, our engagement with his work has produced revival in our own souls as we're gathered here tonight. Come on. This evening, you guys know that we're beginning a new wave. It's important to remember as we begin that all the work ahead is built upon the foundation already laid by the ministry of Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and Ezra. Tonight, you're going to see the Holy Spirit is once again stirring up the hearts of men and causing this third wave to commence. Tonight, you will see that once again, men of God take their stand upon the original promises found within the Torah. Adonai and his faithfulness will never forsake his covenant with the people of Israel or with the land of Israel or the one city where he has caused his name to dwell. Jerusalem, the city of David. So each wave of return is a continued sign of Adonai's grace. As John 1.16 says, For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. Before we begin our review tonight, we want to take a moment to pray, requesting that our Father would help us recognize the continuity of his grace in the book of Ezra Nehemiah. Amen. You guys want to stand and pray? Yeah. Yeah. Holy One, Lord King of Israel, Lord, we cry out to you. Lord, those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for those who want to know the deep things of your law, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, Lord, to see that continuity of your grace in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Lord, we thank you for what you've disclosed so far. Lord, and we ask you humbly, Lord, open our eyes once again. Open our hearts once again, mighty one. We are desperate for you to speak to us, desperate for your help, and we cry out to you now as we begin this review and as we continue in our studies. We ask all this in the name of the Messiah, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Thanks. As we begin a review, again, we are starting out praying, asking that God would help us see the continuity of his grace being displayed. We're going to begin with old faithful, if you will. The return from exile. See Zerubbabel? That was grace. Ezra, 
That was grace. And Nehemiah, that is grace as well. Yeah. You'll notice that our blue box is now around Nehemiah in our third wave. You guys probably remember that there were three sieges on Jerusalem, three attacks from our Jeremiah studies. As you engage with this slide, notice the three rectangular boxes titled Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They represent three waves of return, returning Jewish people to the land of promise that are detailed in the work we are covering together. Now draw your attention to the left side of the screen. There are two arrows. The 70 years of prophesied desolation <clears throat> began in the third siege and continued for 23 years after the Persian Empire rose to power. The temple was destroyed in 586, and it was rebuilt and completed in 516 BC under the administration of Zerubbabel, bringing wave number one to completion. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah were at work during this period. Come on, aren't those amazing works? Yes. Yes. Haggai focused his efforts on regaining the initial enthusiasm to complete the work that had already begun on the temple, but it stalled. Mm. Zechariah focused on the assurance that the work would be completed even though it had stalled. The Lord used these prophets to ensure that the work on the temple was completed exactly 70 years after it had been destroyed, just as Jeremiah and Chronicles indicated. The work of God can never truly be stopped, though. Yeah. The temporary delays due to opposition only served to magnify Yahweh's sovereignty in the situation. Yeah. True. When the people of God awakened to this reality, what had been stalled for 17 to 18 years was brought to completion in only about four years. Come on. Yeah. We are, of course, in our own three-month time of re-evaluation re to ensure that we complete the work Adonai has assigned to us. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, whose name is in the middle of that red circle at the bottom of the screen? Esther! That's right, that's Esther. The book of Esther largely takes place in the Persian capital city of Susa. That's going to be important later. Oh, yeah. Also, this occurs between 483 and 473 B.C., more or less. Guys, that is also going to be important to our studies today. That means that the temple was standing during the events of Esther in the city of Susa. Additionally, this means that the events of Esther contributed greatly to the climate of the Persian Empire, and very specifically to the climate of the city of Susa itself. This is the same city in which Nehemiah will rise to his official position before being sent to Jerusalem. Next on the slide, you'll remember that Ezra arrived personally in Jerusalem in the 450s B.C., which was almost 60 years after the temple was completed and 80 years after the original decree of return went out. Ezra began his ministry by addressing the very soul of the nation that had idolatrous practices growing in their midst during the time between the completion of the temple and Ezra's arrival. The altar and the temple, which could be thought of as the heart of the nation, so the altar and temple could be thought of as the heart, heart of the nation, there you go, were already in place. One of the things that we noticed in the ministry of Ezra was that the presence of a renewed heart, the presence of a temple and altar, did not indicate purity within the soul, meaning the mind, will, and emotions of the nation. Another one of the things that we noticed in the ministry of Ezra is that the presence of a renewed heart 
And the presence of a temple and altar did not indicate that the actions of the nation were unmixed with the practices of the world around them. Oh, come on now. Do you remember that having a purified temple, temple in place, did not mean they were personally pure? Yes. Have you personally interacted with that subject? Yes. I mean, have you begun to die over the last few weeks of searching your own heart? Yes. See, another one of the things that we noticed in the ministry of Ezra was that the presence of a renewed heart, the presence of a temple and an altar, do not indicate that the most intimate areas of the law are being carried out in the lives of the men who have left everything to be in the land of Israel, most specifically speaking, in their marriages. See, we're enjoying this time of refinement personally. Amen. Much like the Torah that addressed the heart, Zerubbabel took care to establish God's temple and altar in the heart of Israel. Ezra, like the Nevi'im, addressed the soul of the nation and warned them about idolatry still present within their renewed nation. Next, you should notice our blue box has magically moved to the rectangular box on the right of the screen titled Nehemiah. Thank you, Pastor Ben. When we showed up to study, it just magically moved itself. It's the hard work of Pastor Nick. The focus of Nehemiah's ministry was establishing the security and strength of the nation based on faithfulness to Adonai in the given historical setting. This is easily related to the purpose of the Ketuvim in general. Yeah. So Zerubbabel and Joshua established the temple and altar, which are the heart of Israel. Then Ezra addressed Torah observance within the soul of the nation by confronting practices that don't reflect the spirit of the word. And finally, Nehemiah built the wall and city, restoring its strength while encouraging faithfulness to the word in the historical setting that the people were living in. The three waves of return to Israel were also a three-fold endorsement of the Tanakh in its three-fold function. This should remind you of Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall Mm. love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This was always more of a prophecy than a requirement in the word of God. The Lord is going to make sure that his nation loves him with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their strength. After noting that there were three distinct categories of desolation in the book of Jeremiah, and those three were the nation's servitude, the nation's desolation, and the nation's temple being destroyed, many have understood the prophecy of 70 years to actually mean that while each of these judgments started at different times, they all lasted exactly 70 years. This is a compelling thought, and we're here to tell you tonight that it's probably true. So we've shown you that exactly three sieges occurred in our previous studies, and we've shown you that there were three waves of return that occurred. Now it's beyond the scope of our studies to illustrate the exact correlation between each of the three periods and the likelihood of three distinct 70-year periods. However, it's probably true. Yeah. Now the complication is found in determining exact starting and ending points for the other two periods. It's not something that will, uh, our time will allow us to do tonight. Our hope is that in the decades to come, it will be the object of your personal endeavors to figure that out. 
For now, it is enough to know that the time from the destruction of the temple in 586 BC to the completion of the rebuilt temple in 516 BC is exactly 70 years. So each wave of return was prompted by the Spirit of God and in the precise timing Adonai intended. We're going to revisit our timeline slide together. Come on, man. Ready? Yeah. So the third siege of Jerusalem that destroyed the temple occurred in 586 BC. The Persian conquest of Babylon occurred in 539 BC. Zerubbabel and his companions returned under the edict of Cyrus in 539 BC. Or A. The temple was completed in 516, which was 70 years after its destruction. Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah were all working in the 23-year period. Good Lord. That is some serious biblical history packed right here. The Edict of Cyrus and the completion of the temple. Mm. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the 450s B.C., which we have covered together, to reform the people and to teach them Torah. Now, what does that leave us, saints? Nehemiah who is going to arrive in the 440s B.C. to rebuild the wall and the city itself. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. So let's work down the left side of the slide. You will notice around 538 B.C., Zerubbabel and his companions returned to Israel under the Edict of Cyrus so that they could begin rebuilding the temple. They began working on the temple in 538, but the work was stalled for about 17 to 18 years. Thankfully... Haggai and Zechariah stirred the people back into action Praise God. in about 520. With the work underway again and aided by these prophets, it was completed in the year 516 B.C., four years. Now, as you slide on down the scale, almost 60 years, you will come to our second wave, where Ezra has returned to Jerusalem in 458 to begin the reformation work necessary for the remnant of the 12 tribes to be holy pure and spotless as God intended. Now, as you slide on down to that blue box, you will come to Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem, roughly 13 years after Ezra's arrival. 13 years. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the city to secure Jerusalem so that the city will function as it once did in the days of Solomon. Nehemiah's first leg of the work last for roughly 12 years as he faces opponents from within the city and without. Nehemiah eventually affects reform in the city while establishing the security of the city, and this is going to pave the way for Messiah, who would later walk into Jerusalem Ooh, himself. Come on, brother. So our next few slides will be critical to remember. As the ordering of your modern Bible can unknowingly subvert your understanding of the one singular unified message that Ezra Nehemiah presents. Yes. Our first slide on this topic comes from New Unger's Bible Dictionary. The book of Ezra. In the ancient Hebrew scriptures, Ezra and Nehemiah were classified as one book called the book of Ezra. Since 448, Hebrew Bibles have contained the twofold arrangement of Ezra and Nehemiah, as in our English renderings. We want you to notice here the incredible truth that all the way up until the 15th century AD, Hebrew Bibles had the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as one 
unified work. This means that for about 2,000 years, from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah up into the 15th century, these writings appeared together without separation. So let's look at our second slide on the subject of a unified message. This is from Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible. In the Talmud Tractate Bhavavatra, 15a, the rabbis and scribes regarded Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. Josephus also considered the two books to be one when the number of Old Testament books was given as 22. Some church fathers, such as Melito of Sardis, and Jerome thought of them as one book. The Septuagint also grouped the two books as one, referring to them as Second Ezra to distinguish them from the apocryphal book known as First Ezra. So even their numbering of the Older Testament books reflected the fact that these works were not referred to as separate writings, but as one book with one continual story and one unified message and they should be studied as such. Hello. So as we move to our next slide, you should be picking up that both in Hebrew and in Greek, it is one unified book. It is only a modern invention that that has been changed. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were regarded as one book in two parts by the Jews and early Christians. In Hebrew manuscripts of the Older Testament and in early printed editions of the Hebrew text, they were treated and reckoned as one book. The 685 verses being numbered from the first verse of Ezra on through to the last verse of Nehemiah. The middle verse was given as Nehemiah 3.32. We haven't reached the halfway point yet. The notes were placed at the end of Nehemiah. The division of the book Ezra and Nehemiah and later printed copies broke up the fourth of ten satirim or cycles for public reading which began with Ezra 8.35 and ended with Nehemiah 2.10. It wasn't just the Jews who regarded this work as one book. The early Christians reflected the Jewish view, even noting that 685 verses began in Ezra 1.1 and ended in, for us, what is Nehemiah 13.31. But it would be consecutive chapters and verses for them. With the middle verse of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah occurring in Nehemiah chapter 3. All notes regarding this work were placed after the end of Nehemiah 13 when the book was completed. That's where commentary and notes went after you had finished it. Our fourth and final slide on this particular topic comes from the New Bible Commentary. Which we thought the name was kind of ironic. New Bible Commentary. How come there's not an old wine commentary? Or a... Ancient paths commentary. Everybody wants a new Bible commentary. Well, at least the new Bible commentary is going to say exactly what happened with Ezra and Nehemiah correctly, right? So although the books of Ezra and Nehemiah appear as two separate works in our English Bibles, they were originally two parts of a single work, and they should be studied together as a single whole. Not only is ancient Jewish tradition clear about this, the division into two books being probably an innovation by the Christian church, but more importantly, the contents of the books themselves demonstrated. In particular, the second half of Nehemiah serves as a climax to all that has gone before it, not least the work of Ezra, as his prominence in Nehemiah 8 makes clear. Although Nehemiah 1.1 obviously starts a new section in the work, 
It marks no more of a break in the narrative than does Ezra 7.1, where Ezra himself is first introduced. Now, admittedly, we have often slipped in our speech re referring to Nehemiah as a separate book. The truth is that saying or thinking about Ezra and Nehemiah as anything other than one book is both incorrect and destructive to your understanding of this singular work. Tonight, we will see the restoration process of Israel's heart, soul, and strength continue. Amen. Unfortunately, guys, dividing the singular book of Ezra and Nehemiah into two is not where division stops. Actually, it's much in the same way the Protestant church never stopped dividing after Martin Luther. How about that? Check out this next slide with us. This is one type of division that scholars before us have dissected the book of Nehemiah into. Now our goal tonight is not to tear down the work of men prior to us, but instead to highlight the inherent errors in the way Western men tend to study. That's right. That's you and me. In an attempt to clarify the content, this author has broken down the contiguous narrative into itty bitty tiny little pieces and in effect rearranged them as he saw fit. Despite the fact that this slide is convoluted and it doesn't serve to help you understand the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah, in the least it is far from the worst. In fact, we've got a worse one for you. Yeah, we can't read it either. <laughs> so it's really hard to gain from all of this documented information if you're not able to even read it. <laughs> now, it is important that in our desire to break down every detail of a passage, that we do not lose the overall narrative and, catch me on this, the intended impact that it's supposed to, it was supposed to have on the original audience. Amen. Amen. So, Saints, as we're discussing the impact that was intended, our goal is not to break down Ezra and Nehemiah into finite pieces, regroup them out of the author's original intent, and categorize them. It's to understand the impact, the purpose. To that end, we have a slide to remind us of the path that we've taken thus far. Amen. See, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Nevi'im. This is prophets like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, the major and minor prophets, and then the writings, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, or Song of Songs, which is Pastor Nick's favorite. That's mine. Yeah. See, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah has taken us through a path that is intended to have an impact. Zerubbabel's work was aimed at the heart of the nation like the law of God. Ezra was aimed at the soul of the nation like the Nevi'im. Tonight, while well, we've moved, we've moved to the ministry of Nehemiah, who in many ways embodies the central function of the Ketuvim yeah. in one man's ministry. Come on, come on. Our next slide is Jesus endorsing the Tanakh. So the Tanakh, made up of the Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, the Ketuvim, the writings. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law, the Torah, of Moses, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, which is basically the letterhead to the Ketuvim at large. You see, Jesus not only endorses the three areas of the word, but he says all 
three areas Come on. must be fulfilled. Yeah. Not one area of the word or its function is irrelevant. It must all be brought to completion. Ooh, let's build a little bit. Check out this next slide. Okay, so the Torah, the law, that's all about the founding of Israel. The Nevi'im, the prophets. These books cover the time period from the promised land all the way into captivity. And we want to note the unified theme all the way throughout the prophets in this section of the work. Then Ketuvim, the writings. This is all about how to live a faithful life in your historical context. These are the major areas of emphasis in the body of the Tanakh. Now you're going to notice tonight, and also in your studies throughout the rest of the Bible, that the Torah is constantly referred to no matter where you are in these sections. This is because it is the foundation from which the rest of the word is formed. Yeah. Yeah. So our next slide is going to demonstrate this principle. Check out this next slide. The Samurai side is, has Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God, say it with me, all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. This correlates to the Torah, the heart, the Nevi'im, the soul, and the Ketuvim, the strength. Once again, the Tanakh is aimed at the total three-part being that makes us up. Psalm 19, 7-8 is instructive in this regard and familiar to many in this room. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Someone say amen. Amen. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Now, we don't have time to cover the differences between the law, statutes, and precepts, but suffice it to say that the Word of God in its holistic three-part context is what makes a man radiant. And tonight will be no exception to this truth. Next, our slide on Ezra and Nehemiah's name. Ezra means help. Can you clearly see the way in which God sent Ezra to help them out of the sin that had bound them and set them free? Well, you're going to clearly see how Nehemiah means comfort. Yahweh's comfort, to be specific. We noted earlier that Nehemiah's work is the continuation of Yahweh's grace toward his people. Grace upon grace, one after another. As John 1.16 in the NET says it, For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another. We have two final points of review that will immediately pertain to our narrative tonight. The first slide is Jerusalem and the temple. The city of Jerusalem is a key focal point in these books because this city represents the land from which the Jews were taken into exile in Babylonia and to which they now return. The city and its location are sometimes used synonymously, as in Ezra 2, where we find Jerusalem and Judah, and Ezra 4, where they are cited in the reverse order, Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem was important because of its political significance as a capital city, but it was most important to the Jews because it was in Jerusalem that the temple was located. Yep. This building is referred to by several different expressions, a house at Jerusalem, the house of God which is in Jerusalem, 
the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the temple which is in Jerusalem, and the temple of the Lord. You see, the twin themes of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and of rebuilding the temple are central to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. There is accordingly frequent reference to work in Nehemiah 2, to the work of rebuilding in Ezra 5, and to the finishing of the work in Ezra 4. The goal of completing the task is kept in focus as an important theme in the narrative. Now, knowing that Ezra and Nehemiah are one contiguous book, that allows you to be able to see the same continued emphasis placed on the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's writing as was in Ezra's writing. Their unified goal was to restore the altar, the temple, the people, and the city where God chose his name to dwell. This emphasis on the building of the city of Jerusalem was seen as the final wave of restoration from the judgment of God that was manifested in three sieges. In the prior generation that had suffered the destruction of the temple, the city, and captivity in Babylon. The purpose of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is to show God's, hear this, continual commitment to the twelve tribes of Israel and to the line of David. By starting with the heart, the soul, and the strength of the nation, Jerusalem, while paving the way for the desired of the nations to come. Yeah. So you'll remember this next slide from Ezra chapter 4. Until I so order. So in his reply, the king actually strengthened the position of the Israelites by leaving open the possibility that their work might resume later by his permission. This, of course, did happen later on under the leadership of Nehemiah in this story. The king did search the archives and found that Jerusalem had been powerful at one time. What an encouragement this must have been to Ezra's original readers to recall the years of David and Solomon and to know that even a pagan king acknowledged the sovereignty of their empire centered at Jerusalem. If this doesn't impress you, you should go back and read this slide at another time. (laughs) All right, let's keep going. The king commanded that the building project stop until I so ordered. This was the same king who later in 444 B.C., changed his edict and allowed Nehemiah to return and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. However, the immediate result was a forced cessation of the building activity because the enemies used force to back up a legal document from the Persian king. So remember remember from Ezra 4, specifically the cease and desist order, what was it about? It was about a false accusation that was not true at the time that they were building walls. Please continue, Pastor. Yeah, so King Artaxerxes issued a proclamation that was open-ended. The enemies of Israel were able to convince the king to issue a cease and desist order on the building of the city, but the order was issued as a temporary stop to the work so that the king could investigate the matter further and in more depth. As we pick up this evening, and we are nearing very close, you should remember that King Artaxerxes, he personally knew Ezra. He was impacted, challenged by Ezra's bold proclamation of the law about the gracious hand of God and the wrath of God. This relationship with Ezra paved the way for King Artaxerxes to recognize Nehemiah's God-given past 
and sent him to Jerusalem as well. This is no doubt the sovereign hand of God at work in Israel's historical context for the good of God's people and the good of Jerusalem at large. That being said, it is remarkable to see the impact that Jewish men and women like Daniel, Mordecai, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah have had on pagan kings who ruled the world. So one more time we're going to pray, and I'm going to ask Pastor Matthew to pray for us, and we are going to jump straight into the text together. Honey God, we thank you for giving us clear command and cause to honor and revere your name by honoring and revering your word. We pray that as we begin this chapter, that our eyes of our heart can see, that our minds would understand what your will is for your people in Israel at a greater depth. What your will is for this people in this room is at a greater depth. Look at the seriousness of the task at hand for to rebuild and restore what has been dilapidated due to neglect and sin. But that through our hands it will be completed. Yes. Lord, that unity will be fortified. Amen. And Lord, that your name would be made great through every man and woman in this world. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your living word. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pick up with reading the text. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, Israel. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. There are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Tonight's going to be quite exciting. It moves us to know that what we are reading tonight is Nehemiah's own record of how comfort came to Jerusalem. What you have in your hands is Nehemiah's own words. It is Nehemiah writing to you specifically how comfort came to Jerusalem. It is exciting to see what Nehemiah has in store for us. It's exciting to dig in 
to what Nehemiah wants us to know. When you're reading this tonight, you are reading what Nehemiah wants you to know about this process. We're going to get into some exciting things tonight. We're going to do character sketches. We're going to get into the prayer of Nehemiah. We're going to get into what made Nehemiah so special as a man. And I promise that at the end of tonight, you won't see Nehemiah the same ever again. You guys ready to get in? You ready to dig into Nehemiah's writing? Then let's pick up in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Bacaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. All right, as we get started, you should know that most dictionaries say that Hakaliah or Hachaliah means wait for Yahweh. Wait for Yahweh. Nehemiah and his work in Jerusalem have been long awaited. Yeah. And they are in Yahweh's perfect timing. Amen. But Nehemiah is comfort, and he's the son of wait for Yahweh. However, his story does not begin in Jerusalem. It begins in Susa. That's true. We want to show you a slide from our teachings on, on Esther about the city of Susa. Susa. Historical records indicate that under Darius I, the proto-Elamite city of Susa grew in splendor, becoming an imperial capital along with Persepolis. At Susa, a great number of building foundations and the remains of massive, massive columns attest to the presence of one of the largest palatial cities of Persia, equal in grandeur to Persepolis. The Persian Empire was vast, and subsequently contained multiple capitals. So Xerxes would spend spring in Persepolis, summers in Ecbatana in the cool mountainous regions of Medea, and autumn and winter in the far warmer Susa or Babylon. Now, as you may remember from our Esther studies, the Persian kingdom was quite advanced and had several capital cities that the Persians would rotate through based on the time of the year. This was quite advanced for a civilization in its time. Susa was one of those cities, and as you are well aware of, it has a rich history in the biblical narrative. Yeah. Susa is the city that Daniel saw himself in during his vision in Daniel 8. It is also the city that Mordecai and Esther saved the Jewish people in. And it is the city that Nehemiah resides in during captivity. So speaking of Mordecai and Esther, let's put up our next slide regarding Susa. Read these two passages with me. Esther 3.15. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Then a few chapters later in Esther 8.15... Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. Come on. So as we mentioned, Susa is very important to the biblical narrative. Both emissaries of death and emissaries of life actually came out of Susa. You're going to see in our coming chapters that Nehemiah is one of those emissaries of life. Hallelujah. Now, as you are well aware of by this point, the events of Esther occurred between 483 and 473 BC, more or less. This means that both the bewilderment and the joyous celebrations that happened in the city of Susa 
were only a mere 30 to 40 years previous to the context of our chapter tonight. Does that give you some perspective? As we continue, it's important for you to remember that the book of Daniel forecasts four beastly Gentile empires as well as teaches us how to live faithfully within this historical context. You're going to notice due to Nehemiah's character that he thrives within the Persian Empire, the arms and chest of silver. Verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some, some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and about Jerusalem. So first off, we want to note that Nehemiah's brother comes to him from Jerusalem. Mm. And we want to give you a little bit of insight into what his name needs. On pronunciation, I'm going to refer to our Hebrew scholar, Justin Treister, for a pronunciation. Hanani. 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 I'm biased because I married Hannah. We call her Hanny. His name means graciously given of the Lord. Gracious to me. Gracious, the mercy of God. Now the appearance of Nehemiah's brother certainly is the grace of God at work on behalf of Nehemiah and Jerusalem. Why? Because this conversation will set things in motion for the effect that will affect the whole entire nation. Now on a related note, you'll notice that the appearance of this grace is not particularly easy or comfortable on Nehemiah himself. Whose name means comfort. Comfort. Sometimes these little conversations or little realities that trouble your soul are actually the grace of God at work and are the best thing that has ever happened. Oh, yeah. 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 Let's take a look at a slide that will give us an idea of the distance that these men traveled to be in Susa. Oh, come on. You guys remember Ezra? Yep. (laughs) He journeyed from a place called Babylon to Jerusalem. You see our red box on the right side of the screen, Susa? Yeah. You see how much further it is than Babylon? Yeah. Yep. If you remember from our pre- previous weeks, Ezra's journey from Babylon to Jerusalem was over 900 miles. However, in this case, the men who come from Jerusalem to Susa, well, they got significantly further to go. Yeah. And you can see that route displayed in purple. This map will come back to us in the future of our Nehemiah studies. Because you're going to see Nehemiah traverse this multiple times in his efforts to see Jerusalem strengthened. Verse 3, brother. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. (laughs) Remember, this news was brought by a man whose name means graciousness of God. And with him comes a report to Nehemiah that is not sugar-coated. It's not a sales attempt to make Jerusalem sound appealing, but instead it is an honest assessment of its state. Come on, tell me an honest assessment is gracious. This is the grace of God that an honest assessment reaches Nehemiah's ears. Because what's going to happen is Nehemiah is going to hear this and something's going to stir in Nehemiah. And the grace of God is going to make it to Jerusalem. We would like to show you a couple slides to help you visualize what Hanani is describing. So as you're looking at this slide, I know some people it's hard to visualize what Jerusalem looks like. 
This is Jerusalem and Hezekiah's day. Now this graphic is a rendition of what Jerusalem looked like in the time of Hezekiah. Hezekiah lived roughly 225 years before Nehemiah, but Hezekiah was known for his extensive renovations to the city of Jerusalem. You can read about that in your Bibles. It says all of the renovations that Hezekiah did. Now Hezekiah's improvements to the city of Jerusalem were the largest expansions up to his time. This is the largest extent that Jerusalem had ever been up to Hezekiah's time. And Hezekiah's work represented the largest extent of the city of Jerusalem just prior to its destruction. This is what Jerusalem would have looked like to the invading Babylonians. Now that you've seen what Jerusalem would have looked like everybody before Babylon at, came. Everybody look at this screen. Look yep. at what Tracer is describing to you. We would like to show you what Jerusalem looked like in Nehemiah's day. So look at the difference between those two. You guys already tell in the top left of the screen, all the houses that were there are lying desolate in Nehemiah's day. Yeah. In the bottom right of your screen, you can see that a very, very large portion of the main city just no longer exists. Yeah. Not in existence anymore. So you can already see the massive difference in the city before the Babylonian destruction and after the Babylonian destruction. You can see on the left that a major portion of the living quarters and the outer wall completely leveled. What you need to understand about this slide, though, is that the condition prior, is that the condition prior to Nehemiah's arrival was even worse than this. Guys, this slide is Jerusalem after Nehemiah's work. That's why you can see a wall around the major part of the city. Nehemiah and the men already built this wall. So what you're looking at is after Nehemiah's work was completed. We're not even showing you a visual of the moment that Nehemiah first stepped foot. Because that wall as well as much of the structures did not exist yet. The walls you see in the graphic that are intact were actually the walls that Nehemiah completed and would not have been there when Nehemiah arrived on the scene. So when Nehemiah's brother and the men that are with him say, in great trouble and disgrace, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire, this means that Jerusalem is a shadow of what it once was and the surviving remnant was completely exposed and subject to attack on all sides. So Jerusalem has an altar and temple that was built in Zerubbabel in Jeshua's day. It has the Torah that was brought in with Ezra, but it has no security from harmful outside influences. The actual picture is far more desperate than we're able to display in the media available to us. These pictures help, but they don't do it justice what Nehemiah was being, uh, what he had described to him. But we wanted to give you an idea of what news had been brought to him while he was in Susa. You guys saw the contrast between Hezekiah. Yeah. Yep. One of the last times that we had a righteous king who was building the city, it extended off of what you see here. Before Nehemiah begins his work, there's not even the little wall around the remaining few houses that exist. Yeah. When he says they're in trouble, he means they're in trouble. But you have to remember Adonai's faithfulness to Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem would not be left in the condition that you see on the screen. Each wave, including the coming one under Nehemiah, is an act of God's grace and favor toward the people of Israel, to the land of Israel, and to the city of Jerusalem itself. I'm going to read to you out of Deuteronomy, chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, to get an idea of what is going on here. But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all the tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. What is that place, church? Jerusalem. To that place you must go. Was it optional to go there? Nope. No. There, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give in your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. Nehemiah is aware that Deuteronomy says there is one specific place on earth that God has chosen to dwell with his name. It is the place that all Israel would bring their offerings and sacrifices in obedience to God, and the only place. Verse 7, however, is not often considered enough by the general Christian community. This is the one place that they met with God. The one place that they experienced His presence. And as families, they ate and rejoiced in the work of their hands. See, Jerusalem is not only a symbol, but a practical, real part of Israel delighting in the blessing of God itself. And in its absence, they don't delight in it. Hearing the description of the men who would definitely evoke inside of Nehemiah a visceral response. He would understand that what he is hearing means they're without the rejoicing. They're without the security. And the place where God's presence dwells is no longer secure for the people of God. It's no wonder that he responds the way that he does in verse 4, Lenten. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed We are four verses into Nehemiah's portion of this study, in this story, and in his letter, and he is weeping and fasting over the state of Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah's letter for the world to read, and in verse 4 he is already weeping and fasting over the state of God's people and God's city. Doesn't that tell you something about the man, Nehemiah? He is already fasting and weeping. We know this is because Jerusalem is the apple of God's eye. And Nehemiah understands the centrality of Jerusalem and God's plan and for God's people. You should remember that other men of God have been in this state before, including Daniel and Ezra. We have a few slides for you from our Esther study that highlight very well what is happening here. Esther 4.1 When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. You see, Nehemiah, like Mordecai before him, he was moved with concern. And rather than running to his own solutions, rather than manipulation methods or his own right arm, he turns to the Lord in fasting and prayer. He realizes that Jerusalem is God's priority. So he turns to the Lord about the condition of the city. 
He doesn't resort to fleshly devices or manipulating the king or going and chit-chattering to everyone around him. He immediately seeks the Lord's counsel about what he knows that the Lord cares about. Man, that's, that's an important facet, isn't it? Whew, you want to make an impact in the kingdom, church? You pray about what God's heart is moved about. You put your focus on what is moving God's focus and what his heart is being moved on. You partner with him on the earth to accomplish his will. That is effective ministry. That is effective ministry for our, the kingdom of God that we serve. Guys, our next slide is from Josephus on this topic. Antiquities 12. This is the context during a conflict in the Maccabean period. It says, And when Judas saw their camp and how numerous their enemies were, he persuaded his own soldiers to be of good courage and exhorted them to place their hopes of victory in God and to make supplication to him according to the custom of their country. Whoa! The custom of their country? Where did they get that? Clothed in sackcloth and to show what was their usual habit of supplication in the greatest dangers and thereby to prevail with God to grant you the victory over your enemies. Nehemiah's example is actually the precursor to the Maccabean period that we're reading about right here on this slide. Nehemiah's mourning. Which, guys, mourning is usually accompanied by sackcloth and ashes. He's also fasting. He's also crying out to the Lord about God's priorities. The slide says that during the Maccabean period, this was their, quote-unquote, usual way of addressing overwhelming problems. I wonder where in the world they got that from. So you should remember this next slide from New Ungers. The word fasting... In Hebrew, uh, sum is not found in the Pentateuch, but often occurs in the historical books. See these references. And the prophets, prophets references, references listed. The expression used in the law is humble your souls, implying the sacrifice of the personal will, which gives to fasting all of its value. Come on, Mallory. The Jewish fasts were observed with various degrees of strictness. When the fast lasted only a single day, it was the practice to abstain from food of every kind from evening to evening. Whereas in the case of private fast of a more prolonged character, it was merely the ordinary food that was abstained from. To manifest a still profounder humbling of the soul before <laughs> God is repentance yeah. and mortification on account of one's sin and the punishment with which it had been visited. So it was not unusual to put on sackcloth, rend the garments, and scatter ashes over the head. So fasting, mourning, and praying is far more significant than simply abstaining from food. Expressing an inward feeling of sorrow or manipulating God and man through your hunger strike. (laughs) It's about laying down your will. So that you might gain the will of the Father. Nehemiah is engaged in laying his own will down so that he might stand up and take up the will of Adonai. Notice that this is not in response to an immediate threat. 
like in the case of Mordecai, or in regard to a need for personal safety, like Ezra in Ezra chapter 8, before he began his journey to Jerusalem. For Nehemiah, it's purely because he realized Jerusalem is in dire need, and his soul is disturbed about it. Come on. He can't simply move on while he lives in Susa, and Jerusalem is in its ruins. Wow. This is a gut-wrenching attitude that every man in this room needs to grasp. Amen. We are going to pick up the pace slightly because we have a lot that we want to get to with you. And what Pastor Parsons just said, I want to say again. Fasting has zero value if you're not laying down your will and taking up God's. Come on. Yeah. So fasting and praying for what you already have determined you want will not lend towards hearing from God. Its function is to lay your own will down and hear what you do not yet know. Well, in the case of Nehemiah, he was not okay with just hanging out in Susa when he knew the people of God were suffering in Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah here is moved, not by his own circumstances, not by his own problems. He is moved to fast, mourn, and weep for the people of God, for the city of God. And he does this immediately. Upon finding out. See men. Are there things that you know about in your home. That are in ruins. And yet. You're not driven to fast. You might be willing to address it. When somebody points it out. But you're not moved like Nehemiah. Immediately mourning before your God. Asking for his will. Are there areas in your kids. That are in disgrace. Or trouble. And need to be rebuilt. Yet you're more comfortable with going on with life instead of mourning the condition of your children. Remember that Nehemiah's name means comfort. And yet, he is greatly mourning, fasting, and weeping. Why? Why is the man whose name means comfort mourning, fasting, and weeping? Well, saints, that's because all true comfort, well, it is birthed from mourning, fasting, and weeping. Is this not what the Beatitudes teach us in Matthew 5? Church, it's time to stop worrying about whether you've had enough sleep, whether you're recognized, whether you feel like things are good on the outside, and it's time to have a heart like Nehemiah, one that is moved by the condition of our flocks, the ones that have been entrusted to us. Nehemiah is moved not out of self-pity or mortification, but by the desperate need for action on the part of men of God because he sees a problem and something must be done. Amen. Verse 5, brother. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. Notice that in Nehemiah's prayer, he says, we Israelites. We. He says, me and my father's house. You see, much in the same way that Ezra did in chapter 9, Nehemiah counts himself with his people and not separate. He doesn't say... They sinned, and therefore I'm sorrowful about their sin. He says, we have sinned collectively. Nehemiah doesn't have a mindset that points out sin in others first without recognizing it in himself. You see, anytime a man draws closer to God in this kind of mourning, this kind of weeping, this kind of prayer, 
A revelation about the holiness of God can be expected. When you are seriously asking God about your sin and the sin of the people collectively, you can expect God to reveal His holiness to you and show up in what must be done. Although He is not the reason Jerusalem was destroyed, personally. Come on now. Nehemiah is not the reason that Jerusalem was destroyed. He recognizes that he and his father's house have many of the same sinful failings and he cries out in repentance for his entire people. Hone in with us on what verse 5 said. It said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love. Wow, what's Nehemiah doing here? He's appealing to the immovable character of Yahweh God. First and foremost, first thing out of his mouth, gates of praise, God, you are this. You are this. Your character is immovable. You keep your covenant of love generation after generation. See, Nehemiah understands both the sacred nature of God's destiny for Jerusalem and the character of a God who indeed has a covenant of love that cannot be destroyed or annulled. This covenant is both with the people, but it's also with the land itself, guys, and we've learned that before. As the people obey the covenant of love, the law of God, it goes well with them, and you can see that reflection in how it goes with the land. The land prospers. The land comes to life as the people adhere to this covenant. So we're going to go to Deuteronomy 7, and we're going to pick up in verses 8 and 9. And I don't know how to describe how I feel in the moment, but talking about how Nehemiah was stirred up, I feel, I feel stirred up in this moment. And I just want to encourage you that the Spirit of God is moving in this study, and we would do well to be attentive to it. You guys want to get into Deuteronomy 7? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and he redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who loved him and keep his commands. Now, would you be surprised to find out that this phrase, covenant of love, shows up seven times in the Tanakh? So here is the first occurrence in Deuteronomy 7. It is connected with the first time that God delivered Israel out of slavery, both on an internal and an external level. The text also goes on to say that he keeps his covenant of love for a thousand generations. For those that love him and keep his commands. Church, who is it that keeps his covenant of love? Oh, that's Yahweh. 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 You don't have to go far for the next occurrence. (laughs) Deuteronomy 7 verse 12 says, If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. Saints, this is the second occurrence. Notice that it clearly states that each generation has a responsibility to pay attention and to carefully follow these laws so that the covenant of love will be kept with them, that generation. The oath, however, 
It was made with their forefathers, the patriarchs, the fathers in the faith, and it remains to this day. Nehemiah is a clear example of a man and a generation who responds to God's covenant of love with right action. Our next occurrence is in 1 Kings 8, 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. This is the third occurrence, and it takes place at the dedication of the temple. Solomon here is acknowledging that despite generational failures in Israel, the God of Israel has been faithful to keep the covenant of love that he made with Israel. Have you considered that between our first two occurrences in Moses' day that we just read to you, we have gone through the entire cycle of the judges. We've gone through the sinful reign of Saul. We've gone through David's sin with Bathsheba. We've gone through David's sin with the census. And now in Solomon's day, at the dedication of the temple, Yahweh still has kept his covenant of love. Let's look at the same event in the writings. 2 Chronicles six twelve. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now, he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had placed it in the center of the outer court. He stood on the platform and then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord! God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. So we just read the fourth occurrence. This is actually Ezra's accounting of God's faithfulness to his covenant of love in each and in every historical context. God is the one who made the covenant of love, and there is absolutely no, none, non-existent, no historical context that he will be unfaithful in. By the way, moved of the Spirit, Solomon in this passage goes on to pray prophetically for each of the historical contexts that each generation after him would face, including the context of Nehemiah that we're in tonight. Let's keep going in the writings to Nehemiah 1, picking up in verse 5. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. So this is our fifth occurrence. It's also the text that we're reading from tonight. Nehemiah is appealing that the same immovable character displayed in the law and to the son of David, that Nehemiah knows that it's going to be displayed in his generation. Now we're going to flash forward to Nehemiah chapter 9 when he's in Jerusalem praying with the people that he has moved about in chapter 1. 
In mind 32. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that comes upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until now. Thanks, this is our sixth occurrence and much, much further into Nehemiah's work. You can see he's still clinging to that same character. Yeah. The same character that brought him from Susa to Jerusalem as he labors to finish the work that he started. Come on. You can also see Nehemiah's confidence in God's character <laughs> as he compares the current hardships to Yahweh's everlasting faithfulness. And he calls the hardships trifling. <laughs> Acknowledging that they are a small matter in comparison to God's faithfulness, but he's still asking God's hand of intervention upon the matter. Yes. You should know that there was a man just prior to Nehemiah who happened to work in both Babylonia and the Persian court. You may have heard of him. His name is Daniel. Yeah. Nehemiah had definitely heard of him working in the city of Susa for a Persian monarch. This is Daniel 9.2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. Church, this is our seventh occurrence of the phrase covenant of love in the Tanakh. Now notice the incredible similarities between the two passages. Nehemiah, like Daniel before him, is fasting and petitioning God about the condition of Israel and Jerusalem. Hmm. Daniel was informed of the faithfulness of God, both by the law and the work of Jeremiah. Nehemiah stands in his setting with the law, Jeremiah's work, and Daniel's example, who went before him. Law, prophets, writings. Amen. See, great men of God have always been defined by their own personal weakness. They've always been defined by their own personal weakness. They've always been defined by spiritual poverty. And they've always been defined by desperate dependence on. on Yahweh's covenant of love. Amen. Knowing the faithfulness of God and the character of God, desperate men are great men of God because they cling to God's faithful promises and they do not let go. Let's pick up in verse 7. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Ooh. Moses. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Guys, this is one of the overriding, overarching themes of the book of Ezra Nehemiah. Guys, this is the very thing that causes real revival to begin to spring up. It's real revival comes. It's not a mystery how you get to revival. Real revival comes when you go back to what the Torah originally stated. You go back to the foundation of God's work. You go back to the first five books of Moses. You see here, what was authored by Moses, the commands, decrees, and laws you gave to your servant Moses, he's immediately going back and saying, 
This is the foundation that we need to have the revival that we are so desperate for. Guys, we would do well to take personal lessons from this humble attitude that we see in this passage. To this approach toward the Word of God that we see right here in this verse. You cannot have the great revival that you see in Ezra and Nehemiah, and even wave after wave of revival that you see in this book, without first going back to the first five books of the Torah that were authored by Moses and yeah. setting a right foundation. Yeah. 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 You remember that I mentioned I felt stirred? Yeah. Yeah. I now know why. Because of what we're about to cover. I want to highlight that when the Spirit of God is moving, you want to be fully awake. Some of our strongest in here. Remember, we are fighting a spiritual battle. Don't let sleepiness steal the revelation that's being shared with you tonight. Amen? So it's warriors in Christ, as servants of the living God, let's engage with what's being spoken tonight because it was given to us from heaven to share with you. Amen? In light of that, we want to exhort you with all authority and the inspiration that we can muster. Church, you must be intimate with the Word of God, starting in the law... And connected all the way through the end of the book. From the law all the way to the end. Yes, it is important that you read your Bible every day. But more than that, you must be interacting with it personally and in a way that it was designed to be read. Come on. Torah forward. Come on now. If the word does not give you joy, (laughs) like bring you out of the pits of despair and make you afraid and cause you to weep. And so much more than you are not interacting with it like these men did that we're studying about tonight. We understand why some of you are proud that you have the ability to find sods in the word. But for it to move you, you must be moved by the Peshat (laughs) and keenly aware of what it is aiming at for Israel and your life as you are grafted into Israel. Like Ezra and Nehemiah, we cannot have true change in our life. True change in our family, true change in nations, unless we start with the Torah inclining our heart first, then moving to the prophets, warning our souls, and then having the writings direct our strength. So does anybody in this house want to be like Ezra? Yes. Does anybody in this house want to be like Nehemiah? Yes. See, what you're going to have to come to grips with is reading Ezra and Nehemiah will not make you like Ezra and Nehemiah. (laughs) Reading the law of God that they read, doing what they did, will make you like those men. James 1, 22 on that subject says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Man, I love James. James just put things clearly. Sometimes I need that. I can be a little slow. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says... It's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets after the Sunday service what he looks like. Oh! <laughs> what good is a revelation, a sowed? What good is an extraordinary teaching in the word if it is not lived out unto the glory of Adonai himself? Yeah. See, for you to do what the word says, you must first start by reading it as it is written. Torah Forward. Somebody say, Torah. Torah. Forward. Forward. So you then have to be moved by that Torah just like Ezra and Nehemiah were. You have to be so moved that it moves you into action. Yeah. Now on this theme, we want to share Isaiah 8, 19 through 20. 
When men tell you to consult <coughs> mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. Yes. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Church, all too often, Christian study and prayer life are mostly steered by the lives of men long since dead. I know what it's like to read devotionals. I know what it's like to read commentaries. In fact, I know what it's like to study Hebrew, reading Hebrew, and thinking that I'm getting something from the Bible just because I'm reading it in Hebrew. You know what I have to do? I have to pray because I feel dead and dry and get into the Word and have it challenge my heart. I have to be desperate like Nehemiah and ask the Word to actually move me. If I don't, I have nothing. You see, vicariously participating in revelation that other men studied for, that other men wept over, and other men trembled before God about, that will never move you into action. Being around men who speak about the word, but never having the word speak into you will never move you like it moved Nehemiah. You're going to have to get into the Torah, starting with what inclines your heart, and ask God to let it wrestle with you and not give up. See, vicariously participating in revelation that other men studied for, wept for, and trembled before God about, and then Christians wonder why the same word doesn't affect them like those who first received it. Because they weren't hearing perpetuated talks about the word. They were actually engaging with it themselves. They were weeping over it, rising up with joy over it, and they were trembling before it because it spoke to them about their hearts. You see, we are advantaged by those who have gone on before us in every way. When we genuinely wrestle in the law and the testimony like they did. You can read about Jacob all you want, or you can actually wrestle with God and be moved like Jacob was moved. Come on. Listen to Isaiah 42, 21. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. As the law is great, the law is glorious. And guess what? It has the ability to make you great and glorious as well. It absolutely has that ability for every single person in the room. However, it can only do that. This is only true if you're genuinely wrestling with it like the men who wrote it. Guys, I just like the next guy, I love having meaningful scriptures all over the walls of my house. I love putting it on the door frames of my house just like Deuteronomy commanded. But if I'm walking around and not physically engaging with the law of God, not engaging with my heart with it, not wrestling with it, then it does nothing for me. Absolutely nothing. Guys, we need more than just a reminder of what God has done and what he wants to do. We need an engagement of our hearts in this process. We need an engagement of our souls, our spirits. We need a crying out of God to fill the void that has been created. And only the word of God acting in that way can fill that void. Goodness. Are you guys fired up tonight? Yes. Let's read 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. 
like it's the first time you've ever engaged with it. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scripture that Paul is referring to is the law first, then the Nevi'im, and then the Ketuvim. Paul interacted with the Tanakh on a very personal level, wrestling with the word of God because it taught him, rebuked him, corrected, and it trained him. We would be safe to assume that in our own lives, and yours as well, that the reason we don't wrestle with the word like these men did is because we don't value being taught. We don't value being rebuked Uh or corrected Uh or trained. But remember that Nehemiah's name means comfort. But he started with weeping, mourning, and fasting while reflecting on the Torah of God. Come on. Let me ask you tonight, do you have a visceral response to the words of Scripture as they move your heart? Saints, if you want to be comforted and a comfort to those around you, then we recommend that you start where Nehemiah did and follow his example. Yeah. So look, as we pick up in verse 8, and I let the cat out of the back, we really wanted to engage with what made Nehemiah who he is yeah. so that we could engage with it tonight before we went any further in the book. Yeah. Verse 8, brother. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Look, Nehemiah here is acknowledging that the judgments of God were spoken well in advance and that they had come upon Israel, come upon his father's house, and that they're just. He's just plainly saying, this is what Torah says, this is what happened, and it's our fault. Yep, yep. Which paves the way for what is going to come in verse 9. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, come on. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling Hallelujah. for my yeah. See, through Nehemiah's morning, weeping, fasting, wrestling with the righteous judgments of God. He's been led to recount what Yahweh has done in his written word. He's judged us and he's regathered us. After careful consideration of Yahweh's just judgments, Nehemiah is now being led to remember the faithful promises of God that Yahweh has spoken. And that's in a specific order for a reason. Come on. This is the ultimate goal of any such prayer. When you seek the God of Israel, with desperation, both in prayer and in honestly clinging to the word. Well, God himself will enable you to recount his promises and actually stand upon them. You're going to see as this confidence progresses in the life of Nehemiah that this enables him to stand before the king, even though he may not have a favorable countenance. It's going to enable him to stand before a lot of different situations. Before we move to verse 10, though, I want to share with you three excerpts from the prophets that Nehemiah personally had access to at this time. The first one is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat 
the good things of the Lamb. You see, roughly 225 years before Nehemiah, the prophet Isaiah spoke about how Israel's sins would be made white and they would eat the good things of the Lamb. What's happening here is Nehemiah, after wrestling with the judgment of God, he is now drawing courage from these promises. Come on. And you will see from the coming chapters that what he does do is right. He does seek justice and he does defend the oppressed because he's done this all in the right order. Come on now. So four score years before Nehemiah, we have a prophet named Zechariah. <laughs> I'm going to read Zechariah 1.3. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, yes. says the Lord Almighty. So like we said, roughly 80 years before Nehemiah, Zechariah prophesied to a people who were already in the land that if they returned to the Lord, the Lord would return to them. Come on. Nehemiah understands that although they are currently physically feet on the land right now, there is even more of the presence of God that is available to them and that they can have. Yeah. Come on. Let's do one more. Jeremiah 24, verse 7. Some scores before. <laughs> All right, verse 7. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people, and I will be their God. For they will return to me with all of their hearts. Come on. Through the ministry of Ezra, Nehemiah can see the heart and soul of Israel turning to the Lord. Despite this fact, his prayer shows that he understands that a greater transformation is still yet to come. Amen. Thanks. Are you grasping that Nehemiah can look and see Zerubbabel began to affect their heart? Yeah. Ezra began to affect their soul. But there's something more that God wants to do. Does anybody in this house want to stop two-thirds? Or do you want to see the whole will of God done? Pick up in verse 10 and 11, and we're going to start to break down a character sketch. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. I want you to notice with us that Nehemiah is asking God for the favor of the king. He's not asking for favor for his own sake. He's asking for favor for the sake of his people as God's ambassador, yeah. as God's representative. This kind of character trait produces real power and supernatural works Consider Moses interceding for the people after the calf incident. Yeah. See, extraordinary things followed Moses because his heart was after the will of God in the people. Amen. Consider Joshua entering the promised land, facing armies and cities more powerful than his own forces. Yeah. His life was defined by advancing the will of God above anything else. Consider David asking God for favor over his enemies so that his men and their families would be benefited. Or the time... Then he came up to Aruna's threshing floor and he said, let the punishment fall on me in my house, but not these people. Yeah. <laughs> See, all of these leaders cried out to God on behalf of God's people. See, we're not speaking about sinful sympathies. We're recognizing men who can see 
that this is God's will in these people's lives, and they're willing to put themselves at stake for it. See, doesn't James say that when we ask and do not receive, it's because we were asking with wrong motives? So that we might spend what we receive on ourselves. Hmm. It's time that we learn from the character of men like Nehemiah. Amen. You see, Nehemiah started his personal letter by listing how his heart was broken over the state of his people. It's time to truly get broken over the state of God's people. Come on. It's time to not let things slide. It's time to learn from Nehemiah and actually let the things that we are seeing not be ignored, but cause them to break our hearts like it breaks God's hearts. His heart was moved by the judgments pronounced in the law. Nehemiah didn't stray away from the judgments. He didn't cherry pick what he liked about the word and what he didn't like about the word. He didn't stray away from digging into the word and found out where it judged him personally. He was broken over the state of the people and his heart was moved by the judgments that were pronounced in the law. And then his heart was stirred. Say stirred. Stirred. His heart was stirred by the promises of the covenant of love. Man, that is an amazing path. To have your heart broken over the state of your people, to have your heart moved by the judgments, which then allows your heart to be stirred by the promises after God starts repairing your heart and listing his promises that are still true. Nehemiah's heart resolved to act upon what he knew he must do. He wasn't just broken. He wasn't just moved. He wasn't just stirred. He resolved himself to act upon what he knew he must do, and all he asked for was God's favor to bless his attempt. Sometimes we just need to try. Sometimes we just need to have a broken heart. We need to be moved. We need to be stirred and resolve ourselves to go forward and just ask God to give favor on the attempt. We're not going to try to be perfect in the first time because we know it's not possible, but we know God will bless the attempt as we move forward and he will strengthen us unto perfection. Guys, this first chapter of Nehemiah's own record is truly a chapter to behold, isn't it? It's beautiful. We want to end our evening commenting on Nehemiah's last statement about himself, though. I was cupbearer to the king. Now, this is really a very interesting statement to end our our first chapter of the second half here. We've got a couple slides that we want to show you, but first, before we get there, we want to talk a little bit about the prominence of Nehemiah's position. Guys, unfortunately... We've got a very skewed concept of cupbearer in our Western mindset. Now, when we read cupbearer earlier, you might have uh, saw something like this. Excuse (laughs) me, sir. Would you like some of our 1983 Chardonnay? It's very delicious. Any of you think about a cupbearer in that way? You can be honest. Come on. That's unfortunately a very Western kind of thought. Yeah. It's not an an effective thought for thought translation, though. It it is not an effective thought for thought translation. Nehemiah. We're going to take a a small moment to jab at some of you who feel very proud about your literal translations. (laughs) Do you want to know that literally in Hebrew it says cupbearer? It does. It says exactly that. 
Do you know the problem with you believing your literal translation is superior? Is you may have no idea what that actually is in the culture and right. the society. So cupbearer is a really bad translation as far as the thought for thought. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Let us give you a dynamic, some dynamic help tonight. In Persian society, this is a lot more than just what you would think about a cupbearer being. It's far more than a table waiter, even a sommelier, like we saw earlier. <laughs> you should remember from our Esther studies that there are only a select group of men who actually have access to the king. Guys, first and foremost, knowing that, they changes everything about what you think about a cupbearer. The list of men who had access to the king were only the most important governmental officials. Kind of like the seven chief advisors or the top generals that we've read about in some of our recent books. Let's check out our first slide together. All right, this is from the IBP Bible Background Commentary. Cupbearer. The cupbearer in the ancient Near Eastern court held a very important position. He had direct access to the king, and thus, he had great influence. Text and relief describe cupbearers in Assyrian and Persian courts. The cupbearer was in close proximity to the king's harem, and thus, was often a unit. Although, there is no evidence that this was the case with the Later sources identify the cupbearer as the wine taster. In addition, he was the bearer of the signet ring. And was chief financial officer. So, Nehemiah not only had direct access to the king, but more than likely bore the king's signet ring. This implies a great deal of trust, nobility, and prominence. Additionally, he would have been the foremost officer of the king's finances. Wow. So there's a stark difference between the trusted official, counselor, and nobleman that Nehemiah was and our modern understanding of a cupbearer. Think of him like the White House Chief of Staff. So you may be surprised to find out that in our next slide, uh, it's likely that Nehemiah had a position similar in authority to that of Mordecai. Wow, that's good. Come on. You guys having fun? Wow. That's great. Extra biblical references that mention the office of cupbearer in the Persian court have revealed that this position was a position second only in authority to the king. Nehemiah was not only the chief treasurer and keeper of the king's signet ring, which, if you remember from Esther, is how you sign a law into effect. Yep. But he also tasted the king's food to make sure no one had poisoned it. The cupbearer, in later Achaemenid times, was to exercise even more influence than the commander-in-chief. So to help you put some of this together, when you hear the position was second only to the Persian monarch. You should be thinking of Joseph, second only to Pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was not only the chief treasurer and keeper of the king's signet ring, the king trusted him to taste his food in case anyone else in the king's court might have had a foul move at play. Essentially, he is the treasurer. He is the keeper of what you would use to sign any law into effect. 
and he plays a bit of the king's bodyguard. Because when he can't trust anybody else in the court, he has to trust this guy who has his best, his benefit in mind above anyone else in the Persian court. Which also makes him kind of his closest friend, the one person that he trusts. Sure does. This indicates that the king had a deep level of trust in Nehemiah personally, and that Nehemiah was a very good friend of the king. While all of this is amazing, we would think that it is even more enlightening to recognize how Nehemiah introduced himself and his work in chapter 1. You ready for it? He did not start his written work by declaring his position first. Let that sink in a little bit. He has a little tagline at the very end of chapter 1. says, oh, by the way, I was cupbearer. He did not say in the beginning of his letter, I, Nehemiah, the most trusted official, the chief of the treasury, the one higher than the generals, I was in the citadel of Susa when I heard that the poor Jews were in trouble and decided to help. No, no. That is not how he wanted himself to be known to the entire world and all of its generations when they were reading his work. Something you need to grasp about Nehemiah. He started his work letting you know the ways in which he was distraught by the state of Jerusalem and the state of God's people in Jerusalem. He then goes on to introduce himself by the way he repents. He didn't start out with this position. He didn't start out by saying, Hey, hey, I'm the White House Chief of Staff. Nice to meet you. He starts out by chronicling the way in which he repents before the Almighty God. After that, he wants all his readers for all eternity to know how he personally interacted with the judgments outlined in the Word of God. And then he highlights the most beautiful promises of God outlined in the Word. Could this be any more of an insight into the heart of Nehemiah and his character as a man of God? He closes chapter 1 by saying, I was cupbearer to the king, which is the humble wording to say at the least. It's like he's telling the whole world, hey, I'm Nehemiah. I'm moved by God's heart. (laughs) I am transparent and I'm repenting this way because of what I see in my people. I see the judgments of God and I'm moved by them. I also see the promises of God and I'm stirred by them as well. By the way, I'm the White House Chief of Staff. Nice to meet you. (laughs) This is equivalent to saying in our modern times, like someone introducing themselves as just saying, hey, I'm the Secretary of State. Could you imagine our present politicians introducing themselves in this way like Nehemiah does? And yet, Nehemiah's character is extraordinary, isn't it? He introduces himself with his personal wrestling first. Instead of introducing himself with his position in the empire. Church, is this how you introduce yourself and how you view your own position? Is this how you would introduce your letter? One way that you can 
Test yourself tonight as we come to a close. Would you be tempted to outline your position before you enumerate your transparent repentance? Yes, to be clear. We've been wrestling with this. If that's the case, then you got your adjectives about yourself mixed up. And it's time to correct that tonight. Come on. Nehemiah considered the matter of God's will for his people. That's because he partnered with Adonai. He was a servant of Adonai. He prayed, fasted, did all of those things because he wanted to partner and please Adonai with his life and his actions. Because of that, he considered God's will for his people to be in his life, his primary importance. And his own position was very last on the list. This longing for the will of God and this longing for the will of God for Jerusalem is something that Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, shared. So this is Matthew 23, 37-39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now if you have read Philippians 2 lately, then you know that Jesus had every reason to introduce himself by his position first. Yet he did not do that. Instead, Jesus introduced himself as a lowly servant who was primarily concerned with his father's will, the people, and Jerusalem. He did not consider equality with God something that could be grasped. Instead, he gave his life for the will of God. Both Nehemiah and Jesus willingly became afflicted so that they could become the comforters of Israel. Wow. Now this interaction with both the comfort of God's promise and the affliction of bearing God's will on their shoulders, it allowed them to discern the comfort and affliction that the people actually needed. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, where we'll be closing and handing things over to the pastors. For just as we abundantly share in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. I realize this is in Greek, but you could also substitute the word comfort everywhere it shows up for Nehemiah. Because it's his name. It's his function. Yeah. There is no comfort that doesn't has to be birthed out of affliction. Nehemiah's name, you know, means comfort. But you also can see the way he has made himself at the Lord's disposal, enduring the difficulty of bearing God's will so that he might comfort Amen. Israel. That's a good word. You will find out in the coming chapters, Nehemiah fulfills every aspect of the promised hope to those who are afflicted 
in Jerusalem is also the affliction of God upon those who do wrong, those who oppress the poor, and those who refuse to walk rightly with their God. See, in that sense, he's a reflection of God Almighty. He's a comforter to the afflicted, and he is an afflictor of those who are comfortable. It is our desire to emulate his example. I'm reminded of Psalm 45 and verse 1 that says that my heart has been stirred by a noble theme. It's the way that the psalm begins. How we ended tonight and how we began tonight are just something that should be um, very pertinent to each one of us. I, I can say, I can raise my hand and say that I would be one of those who would want to put my position or title instead of my being repentant and how I'm repenting before the Lord. I'd like to do that part first and then let you know something else. Deuteronomy 32:47. Um, Chloe, if actually, if you'll start in Deuteronomy 32, maybe 45, just, just try that. When Moses had finished reciting all the words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. Verse 47 says, They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. Reading about men like Ezra or Nehemiah does not make us men like Ezra or Nehemiah. Engaging with the Torah with the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, just the way that they did, is what allows the Word to transform you. Yes. I have to be honest with you. I want to be a man who can be identified by his repentance for his own sins and the sins of his people above all other positions, no matter how grand they may be. 2 Corinthians 15.1 says that God is, or maybe it's verse 2, says that God is with you when you are with Him. This is something we have to do more than take to heart intellectually. We actually have to allow a fasting, a weeping, and a repenting over our state to increase. Somebody say increase. Increase. To increase in our hearts. But pastor, it feels like we've been doing that a lot lately. Yes, but it's not enough because there is more that God has for us. And we know that revival is burst through the repentance that comes by allowing the word to transform us daily. As we engage with the word. Man, I love what these men did. But I want to be like what I read. Yes. I don't even want to admire Nehemiah as much as I want to be like him. I want the word to transform me so that when I see God's people and his plan, that I respond the way that Nehemiah did. Not just because I've read it here tonight or had other men engage with the word for me, but because his word has so transformed me and I respond in the same kind of heart that God had towards it. Would you stand to your feet with us tonight? Isn't it good when the reality of the word... Hit you square in the heart. Yeah. Yeah. 
If you're no longer seeking to just repeat what inspired another man, but you're longing to live what another man experienced, doing what it takes to experience what he experienced. One of the things that stood out to me are the few verses that preceded the Second Corinthians passage that the pastor shared. Verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. So let's get a shot. Let's not make sure we don't go so with this. Where does the comfort come from? God. And where does it go to? Us. Clear. Got it. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. See the linear path? Comes from Him, comes to us, we give what He gave to us to them. So where's the breakdown? Well, one is when we try to comfort ourselves. We try to make our own version of Nehemiah unto ourselves because we just can't stand the pressure or tension. And therefore we generate our own. Or, we're not fully satiated with what God is comforting with to us. And so therefore we try to generate our own version of comfort to give to other people. What we're learning tonight is going to rebuild the structure as a fortification and defense against the way that we uh, misalign and malign God's comfort. Let's just stand in the tension, trusting that our God will comfort us, that He's never ceased to provide that comfort. He will send the grace from God, that brother that's so dear, to our doorstep and reveal His plan that stirs our hearts to action that we don't have to stir ourselves. But it begins exactly how Pastor Wade enumerated. Begins with finding that comfort of being transparent with our true condition first, before we exalt any responsibility of nobility that God has given us. So as we pray, let your hearts be humble. Let your hearts seek God's comfort and to give God's comfort. And let's cry out for his resurrection power to reciprocate that humility. Mighty God, you are the God who sets things in all right order. Lord, when our hearts align with you, there is nothing that we lack. My flesh will scream at me. My soul will be in tension and war. But you are the God who rescues, who steps in and delivers when your people cry out to you and you alone. Tonight, we come underneath your right order. Our hearts align with yours. And we say, Spirit and Word of God, help us partner with your heart and your mind. Lord, that we may find your comfort and compassion in our time of need, but for the importance of giving it to others in their time of need. May we pour out what you poured into us, Lord God and see your grace multiply as it reaches your people. 
Lord, we pray right now for the nation of Israel. Lord, we lift up this people that you have bought, that you have purchased, that your covenant of love remains upon, that we find hope for them and thereby find hope for us. Lord, may your word reach the center of their hearts. May it transform them to fall in love with you and see Jesus as Messiah. Lord, and may their hearts cry out to you as our hearts cry out to you now. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your word of truth. Amen. Amen.